All right. I am going to introduce our speaker from here today. I appreciate the shortness of his bio because, because I don't have my glasses on today. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jonathan podcast and writes books uh, where he exegetes culture and theology from an open and relational mimetic framework. He is the father of three and lifelong partner of one. I like that. And also a good friend. All right, I'm going to give it to you now. Okay. Thank you, Latia. How's everyone doing? Good, good stuff. You're going to have to turn around. Yeah, it's not going to work there. All right, that's going to be better. Very nice to have you. Uh, Latia, you just finish eating, then you can turn around too. So, you know, yeah, you're good. You're good. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it was uh, great to be with you a couple of weeks ago and to be back tonight. And I'm a fan of what you're doing. And I'm always a fan of Latia, so that works out well. Um, and she asked me tonight, she had this crazy question, why have faith? And so uh, I'm just going to jump over one little part because the first, my first thought was, well, everyone actually has faith. It's just a matter of what, what you put your faith in. So I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption that we're all kind of talking about like roughly, generally, approximately the same kind of thing, like a faith in some kind of spiritual, divine uh, happening thing with God. And then so... Then we can just, if I can just say that, then I can lump a whole section of stuff that I was going to talk about out of my brain, and then we won't have to worry about that. So I thought I would share a couple quick stories, and then I've got a few uh, points to, to run through, and then we'll leave, leave some time for some question and response. Is this good? Everyone feel okay? All right. Nice. Uh, so two quick stories. One happened probably, gosh, 15 years ago or so now. Um, I was standing in line at a Quiznos sandwich shop. Anyone ever been to Quiznos? Yep, yep. So I was at a Quiznos, and uh, I had gotten there to meet a friend. I got there a little before he did, and so I got in line. There was a couple of people in front of me. And right after I got in line, about, I mean, just a f like a minute after I got in line, like seven, eight, nine people came in behind. So all of a sudden, this small little Quiznos sandwich shop had like a dozen people in line. And I can't quite explain it, but it was just kind of an odd vibe that was happening there, though I didn't really realize how odd it was until a few moments later. So uh, I'm there, a bunch of people behind me, my friend shows up, and I just kind of lean out the line, and I say, hey, let me know what you want, I'll get your sandwich. So he comes up to meet me to, you know, kind of check out what the sandwiches are, and he, you know, stands there and proceeds to talk, but as he's talking, Apparently, the people behind him, uh, specifically the guy right behind him, really took exception to the fact that he might have been, like, I don't know, cutting, sliding in front. I mean, the, it didn't even cross my mind. It all just kind of happened quick and natural. And this guy was standing right behind my friend. I mean, his, his face was up against this guy, the, the back of my friend Andy's neck. He was a big dude, too. He was like a bodybuilder. And uh, so it was quite interesting. So he, his face was, like, right behind my friend's neck. And so finally I said, you know, are, are you okay? And... He said, actually, no, I'm not okay. And he proceeded to uh, start talking really loud. And then at one point, I'll never forget this phrase, he said, I've got some animosity to express. And so 
I said, well, at this point, everyone in the little sandwich shop had stopped eating and just was, you know, quiet, not talking. And so I said, well, ex you should express your animosity. And he said it again. I've got some animosity to express. And so he did. He proceeded to express his animosity and, and said, you know, it's people like you in this country and all this kind of stuff. And it was just the oddest thing. And it got, thankfully, it didn't get, like, physical. But it was just a, he, this guy was really put out. So finally I said, well, would you like to get in front of me? And he said yes. And then uh, my favorite part of the story is there was a, a little guy behind him who said, I think we should all get in front of you. I'm like, really? Okay, all right. So I stood back and let a couple more go. And then, you know, the people in the back, they didn't care. And it was awkward and weird. And then we had to stand in line. And the line kind of wrapped around. And we had to, you know do this the whole time, and the guy, it was just the strangest thing. Uh, the guy went from saying, I got some animosity express, and yelling at the top of his lungs, turn around and going, I'd like the herb-crusted uh, turkey vegetarian sandwich, and I just thought the whole thing was weird. So it's a quick little story. I, uh, I deleted a few details to get through it quickly, but um, it was an odd example for me of how things can happen when I'm not even looking for it. Like, stuff can be going on, that I'm not even aware, and all of a sudden, boom, I'm off into this whole world, wasn't even aware of. All right, fast forward to uh, just a few years ago, I was at Quick Trip standing in line, because all my best illustrations have to do with me standing in line. So I'm at the QT, and uh, doing whatever you do at QT, I don't know about you, but I don't go there to really talk to people or meet people, I should, I, I'm not saying that's right. But I'm, it's a transactional thing. I'm there to get my batteries, my Doritos, whatever it is. Uh, in, in and out, corn dog, you know, I'm in and out. It's not my favorite place. Uh, it's, what's that? Ah, uh, taquitos, yes, for sure. Um, you know, it's not my favorite place. It's got the fluorescent lights, and it never smells that great. And although Quick Trips are nicer now than they used to be, um, and other convenience stores too. By the way, my favorite name of a convenience store we discovered this year, we were way out west, way out west Nebraska, and I drove by a place called Gettin' Split. <laughs> That's a good name, Gettin' Split. Anyhow, that is neither here nor there, it has nothing to do with the story. Uh, I'm standing in line at the Quick Trip. I'm there like just to get in and out. I'm not trying to talk with anyone, I'm not looking people in the eye. And all of a sudden I notice the, the register person, the cashier, she kind of backs up and looks to her left, to my right. And I notice people in front of me in line kind of do the same thing. And uh, I look to my right and there is a half a dozen or more, maybe seven or eight um, mentally disabled, special needs, uh, kids coming in the door. I say kids. They were they were probably in their 20s or 30s So I looked over and both doors open and this group comes walking in and these people for them It was not a transactional place. It was a destination place They were very excited about being there and whereas I had been averting eye contact They looked right in my eye. They looked into everyone's eye They said hi and they started talking about the different kind of stuff they were going to buy and I just watched this whole, the vibe of the whole place change in a matter of literally like two or three seconds. Like you just saw the body language, everyone kind of relaxed and people smiled. And you know those, I don't know if you've noticed how fast the people are at the register at 
you know, quick trip, and they're doing like four at a time. They all slowed down, and they stopped, you know, swiping the cards. And for a moment, everything changed. It felt like you were in a, like a musty, a stale room, and all of a sudden, someone opened the window and let in an ocean breeze. Like, it just changed that quickly. And um, that was, f I think, about five years ago. And I, I just loved that moment. And now I, I can never go to a quick trip or a getting split without looking for, you know, a group of people. And, and thinking about how, like, what's the common denominator with both these stories is that there was something going on that I was I wasn't a... I wasn't like privy to, I wasn't a part of, I wasn't even looking for, and all of a sudden I found myself in a different world. Now, each story uh, you know, goes in a, a little bit different direction, but um, I find that to be very interesting. So I will invite you to just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about our uh, topic tonight. And if I remember, we'll reference them, the stories again, a little bit later. And if I don't, later on tonight, you'll be like, why did, he, why did he tell those stories? Uh, so, Latia asked me, why faith? A couple of weeks ago when she emailed me and reminded me that this was what I was going to talk about, I sat at my little desk and I thought to myself, well, why would I have faith? The very first thing that came to my mind was, well, I want to be someone who believes that something bigger than me is going on. And I thought that was a pretty honest question, but then I asked myself, well, why do you want to be that kind of person? Because by the way, this is what I do with half my life. I sit at the desk and I ask myself questions. And then I either talk, you know, type them out and write about them, or I talk to people like you. So why do you want to be someone who believes that something bigger than you is going on? So then we got down to real business then. So I'm like, okay, that's a good question. Why do I want to be that kind of person? So I came up with seven things. Now, don't panic because I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on three or four of them. So we'll get, we'll get through them relatively quick. And so I thought I would share them with you tonight. By the way, while I'm thinking of it, Latia or Madison was kind enough to put my newsletter URL substack thing on the back of uh, your tents at the table. So I write about this kind of stuff and I've got some books. I did bring some books tonight, but there's, you know, no pressure. Um, and anyhow, if you want to learn more about me or that kind of stuff, make sure you sign up for that weekly newsletter. Okay, seven things. Why do I want to be the kind of person who believes that something bigger than me is going on? And I don't have slides, but I do have slides. This is the first slide. I don't know if you can tell, but um, palm to the face. Uh, this is representing um, my first point, which is the reason... I want to believe that there's something bigger than me, or I want to be that kind of person, is because, frankly, I would just be embarrassed if I had to completely recant all faith. If I had to say, at this point, you know what, I think the whole thing's a joke, I'm done, because I've already lost, like, the majority of my friends with all of my theological change as it is, and we all know how difficult that is. If I went the full way and said, you know what, this, this is, it would just be embarrassing, because I've spent most of my life as a pastor, and I really can't afford that kind of hit to my reputation anymore, so I'm just being honest with you, that's the first one. Uh, number two um, is, and this is just a, it's just a horrible drawing, but it's supposed to be a mirror. You're looking into it, um, which somewhat symbolizes, it's not, the, it's not the best metaphor, but this idea that, well, honestly, all of my role models, 
So all the people I've looked to, that I've seen, that have been reflected in life, um, all the people I've looked up to in my life, yeah, that I've looked up to, are, have been people who have believed something bigger than all of us is going on. And so that, that's not lost on me. Uh, a lot of my dissertation work was done in uh, one of the words T used in the, uh, in the introduction there was mimetic theory. And so this is hard for me not to talk a lot about, but I, but I won't. But mimetic theory is all about uh, imitation and desire and how really our desires, they're not our desires, they're desires of the other person. And so the way this always works is, you know, you don't just come up with stuff. It's not like we live in a vacuum. We're all interconnected such that, you know, I begin to want what you want. You begin to want what I want. Our entire marketing structure is built upon this. Actually, capitalism is really built on this. And a lot of church stuff is built on this. It's pretty, uh, pretty sinister, but also brilliant and interesting. So um, I recognize that, and I realize that all my role models have had faith. And so I've kind of wanted to have it too. And even though my faith has changed and my role models have changed, still the people I look up to are generally people who kind of feel like something bigger than them is going on. All right, number three. Okay, this is very similar. I couldn't draw a picture of Jesus. Although I did see this week, did you guys see there was an Instagram or uh, some, somewhere I saw a social media post where someone had found a face of Jesus in a slab of bacon? <laughs> they bought, and it looks just like, you know, the kind of the iconic picture of Jesus. It's classic, man. I would buy that bacon in a heartbeat. Um, okay, so yeah, this, is the, this one is closely related to number two. That is that, um, so still for me, despite all the things I've been through, like Jesus is a very compelling figure to me. Not in the way that it used to be where I thought like, oh, you know, you got to pray to get him in his heart so that you're, you know, his blood saved you because you're bad and sinful. Um, by the way, we all do have portions of badness and sinfulness in us, but that's up for a whole other discussion. So it's not that. It's, it's less of that and more of um, the way he lived. That, that's a role model for me, and um, it's important to me. And for him, he clearly was a person of faith. Like, he clearly thought there was something bigger than him going on. So I want to pay attention to that. All right, number four. I don't know if you can tell what that looks like, but my slide is supposed to be a cloud and sun, and it's the closest I could get to uh, what I'm just going to say is heaven. So again, all my thoughts about heaven have, you know, it's gone through the whole ringer of all kinds of things. I don't know exactly what I believe, but what I realized when I thought about this question, why do you... Why do you want to be a person who believes something bigger than you is going on? It, what I realize is I still want to, I want to believe that it's possible maybe to see loved ones who've gone on before me. So for me, if that was taken out of the picture, I would be a complete wreck. As it is, I'm just like a half wreck. But if you were to tell me I wouldn't be able to do that, I would for sure be a complete wreck. So, and I'm not saying, by the way, that just then because I have faith that that means that that is exactly going to happen because isn't that the point of faith? You don't know, you have doubts. But for me, I recognize, oh, I'd have to reconstruct yet a whole nother bunch of stuff and yeah, I'm just too old and I'm just too tired to do that. So I've got to keep a, a bit of faith in something bigger than me. All right, okay. Now, uh, so those are four. Okay, now this one you probably didn't see coming. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's such a good drawing. You knew right away that it's evolution. Yeah, it's very impressive. Um, so I could spend a lot of time talking about this too, but essentially the idea here is, ironically, you know, evolution, at least in, in my lifetime, some of you are, are a lot younger than me, so maybe it, or maybe it still plays out this way, I don't know, but in my lifetime for sure, used to be, you know, evolution was the thing that debunked, you know, why you would have any faith, because now we've explained what's going on. And as far as answers go, natural selection is a great answer in terms of like what is happening and how it's happened. It's not a great answer for why it's happening, which is the classic you know, difference between science and faith. Science is really good at the what and the how. It's not necessarily very good at the why. And the scientists know that. It's great to run into some intellectually honest scientists who will admit that. By the way, it's great to run into some intellectually honest religious people too. They're few and far between from both groups. But uh, what I've realized over the years is that, yeah, um, there's this gap, like why have things innovated the way they have, especially in the midst of the second law of thermodynamics, which is that everything is dying. So in the midst of entropy, why, is, why has there been any adaptation? Why, why have things innovated? Uh, Andreas Wagner, Wagner has this great line. Um, it's the difference between the survival of the fittest and the arrival of the fittest. So, you know, evolution generally speaks to survival. What we still don't know is why things have adapted and arrived the way that they have. If we played all this out, or if we took a bunch of time to talk about it, we would narrow it down to it's basically like some people say, well, it's, you know, you just do the physics or, you know, you do the science. Natural law is a big thing. Some people just say it is what it is. And other people say, well, geez, it seems like maybe there's a God or like something bigger than us that is, and this is my take, um, it's a bit more refined than this, but I'll say it this way. Seems like there's something bigger than us that is inviting everything to continue to move in the midst of all this evolution so that there is adaptation and innovation that's available uh, despite all the chaos that's going on all around us. Anyhow, I could talk about that for a whole reason, but that is a whole long time, but that is a reason why I want to be the kind of person who believes something bigger than me is going on. It's because kind of, in a way, there's a bit of rationality behind it. Okay, are you guys doing well? Because now we're getting to the, to the money stuff right here. Uh, this, of course, represents love. Why do I want to be the kind of person who believes something bigger than me is going on? Well, it's because of love, really. Uh, love has completely restructured the way I look at the world and life. But, it, but again, not in the cheesy kind of, um, or maybe I shouldn't even say cheesy, not, not in a more simplified kind of way. Sometimes I think of it this way, like, this is true with a lot of different concepts, but it's certainly true with love for me. You know, you've got these, you've got the simple concept of love, but once it, it really needs to go through complexity, and then on the other side of complexity, there's a whole new kind of nuanced way you think of simplicity. So, for example, when I was, you know, like eight or nine years old, the church I went to would have taught me that God is love. And in fact, probably that's 
that's like the main thing they would have wanted someone at that age to know. They would want to know about love. But, you know, when you're, when you're nine, you think about love. It's different than when you're 49 and you think about love. And by the time I had hit 49, by the way, I'm way past 49, but um, by the time I'd hit 49, I had gone through a lot of complexity. But I had arrived back at love. So simplicity, I kind of think of it as a filter or like a comb or a strainer or something. You got simplicity, goes through all this complexity, but it turns out on this other side, it's, simpl it's simple again, it's, but, but it's still love. It's really beautiful. So for me, uh, love became, like now when I talk about love, I'm not exactly sure what I would have said when I was nine. I might have said something like being kind or hospitable or gracious, which is, um, actually I wouldn't have known any of those words when I was nine. I wasn't that smart, probably. I, kind, I would have said kind. And I might have said that even like in my 30s and maybe early 40s. But now I've had to kind of like rehabilitate the word. And so now when I think of love, I automatically, my brain automatically goes straight to one of a variety of things. Most often, the concept that comes to mind is non-binary, non-violent, non-scapegoating love. There's a whole different kind of love than I was brought up in. God bless those people who brought me up because they were all well-intentioned, good people. But that, the simplicity went through the complexity where I had to wrestle with, well, what is binary and what is violence and what is scapegoating? What does that mean? And I don't have a perfect answer, but um, where I'm landing here is still the simplicity of love, but it's gone through all that stuff. Uh, sometimes when I think of love, like one of my favorite concepts, I don't know if I'd call it a definition, but maybe a definition or a concept comes from a psychoanalyst by the name of Jacques Lacan, who says that love is when you orient your desires around someone else's lack. And the, the uh, philosophers will use this concept of lack, you meaning it probably is self-explanatory, but like this, you know, where we, we all fall short and we're not quite put together and so we're not whole, we're incomplete. And so love is when you choose to orient your desires around someone else's incompleteness. I, I like that definition a lot, or that concept. But again, that's simplicity on the other side of complexity. So it's funny, if that's the right word, maybe tragic. I can talk with some super religious people. And we, we can be talking about love, but, I, but I'm like, I know you're not talking about this kind of love. You know, I, I, can't, I know you're talking about this kind of love. And of course, to be fair, they probably could say the same thing about me. Well, you're not talking about the same thing I am. So it makes it very challenging, not least because of my understanding of love, that I am called back into the non-scapegoating piece. So my job then is to, to um, you know, not, not think too poorly of them. Tell me just a little bit, but not too much. Um, so I could talk about love a lot, but it's, it's a part of, it's the, I think probably all these other things fold into love. They're all a part of it. I find it endlessly fascinating and challenging to try to deconstruct and reconstruct what I think of love. I'll say one other thing before I give you the last one, and we open the floor. Um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, if you were here, Latia asked, what was an inciting incident in terms of, you know, what happened in your life that began to 
really cause you to deconstruct. So for me, there were a bunch of things, but there was nothing as big as when our daughter was killed on New Year's Day 2015. As you can imagine, um, it quickly began a domino effect of what do I believe? You know, what do I think is going on here about life and love and art and loss and beauty and sacrifice and God? And I was a pastor at the time, um, so I was doing this in real time, trying to uh, really enter, like I was really committed to enter into the grief of the thing. I think in part because we had so many young people at our church and, um, and, and the most important to me were our two boys. So I was really committed to like have intellectual honesty with this thing. The last thing I was going to do was stand up and just say, oh, you know, everything's great because the Bible says this, this, and this. Um, another piece of that is that it's weird because I also didn't, I didn't feel that everything was great, but a part of that was like, I, I kind of, I don't know how to say this. I kind of, I didn't enjoy, but that part that didn't feel great, I kept hanging on to it in part because it felt like it was the last thing left of my relationship with my kid. Like that agitation and that tension and that pain and all that really nasty stuff was, uh, like on one hand, I didn't want it, but on another hand, because it was so like entangled, enmeshed with my kid, I wasn't gonna let it go. And so it was weird because I grew up maybe similar to you. Well, I'll just say it this way. Whether we're talking about church or politics or military or national identity, you know, in the West, we've basically grown up with the idea uh, the ideology is, you know, you got to be whole and complete. You got to get rid of all the antagonism. And so God becomes like this sacred object or this sacred coin. You know, we just stick it in the divine vending machine. God will dispense wholeness and then you're, you know, you're good to go. Uh, I'm oversimplifying and generalizing. And there's a synonymous terms like you're good to go could mean you're saved or could mean you have peace or, you know, wholeness. You know the antagonism, antagonism is gone. For me, I kept, I, I kept being like, well, first of all, I don't want to get rid of this antagonism, because it would mean. I'm not sure this is quite accurate, but kind of what it felt like was it would mean I would have to kind of get over the loss, and I didn't think that was ever going to happen, and I didn't think I probably should, and actually, it doesn't even matter. I didn't want to. It, it just didn't matter, right? I would, didn't want to. So to me, it was like a consensual thing, like love was saying, if you want to stay here, you know, I'm, I'm here with you. It wasn't like the way it kind of used to be for me, which was, no, sooner or later, you've got to be an overcomer. You've got to be a victor in this thing. By the way, I do think I'm overcoming. It's just, it's by going through this thing. It's not like, it's not like spiritual bypass, you know, or grief bypass or something. So, um, so yeah, love became very complicated for me because the whole thing's wrapped up in love. The, I think it was the night of that, um, that Quincy, that was our daughter's name, and I think the night she died, um, I was following my son, Shay, up the steps. And at the top of the steps, Shay just turned around and uh, said a bunch of stuff, and it was, you know, it was horrible, and a, a lot of antagonism, a lot of not peace right there. But... Um, 
you know, he was talking about how hard it was, and, and I was, of course, agreeing with him. I wasn't, gonna try, I wasn't trying to change his mind. But I said, you know, Shay, and as I think about it, I think it might be like the second, third, maybe fourth best thing I've ever said. Because it worked then, and it still works now. I said, maybe the reason this hurts so much is because there's so much love. Where's my thing? Yeah, there's so much of this. And it, um, it just kind of rocked my world. And I said, it's something to be thankful for. You know, a lot of people ha have not experienced this. You know, they haven't experienced our pain because they haven't experienced that kind of love. And um, basically what I've been trying to do for the last 99 and a half months, I've been trying to figure out how is it that pain and beauty are not mutually exclusive? Like, what the hell does that mean? That's essentially what I've been doing. It's the only reason I went back to school. It's the only reason I write these books. I keep trying to say it in a different way, and I'm super close. I think if I have another eight years and three months, I might, I might be there. Um, but it's really, it's like been the, this heavy, heavy thing that I've carried, but also I'm really honored to carry it too because it's, it's been meaningful for me, and it's all in some ways connected to my kids, so it's a mess. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say love, after having gone through so much complexity and a bunch of other stuff that I won't overburden, overshare with you tonight, uh, love to me still works, and love is not something I can control. Love is bigger than me. I want to be a kind of person who believes in that still. I don't, I don't know what I'd be without it. <sighs> All right, I talked too long about that. The last one probably enfolds everything as well. I'm not sure if that one should go before or after love. And I had no idea how to draw it out, so this doesn't even make sense. I don't even know what I'm showing you. But it's essentially tapping back into the, the stories I told you when I started, which is experience. My, my experience has been... Uh, I think there's something bigger than me that might be going on here. When, even when I'm not looking for it, it's happening. Maybe most when I'm not looking for it, which might say something about me and my approach. Um, so this is me experiencing the past and the present. We're making the future together because I hope you know and we don't know what the future is yet. God doesn't even know what the future is yet because the future is an unknown entity. That's the whole point of the word. So he or she is trying to partner with us to make the future a reality. By the way, that's just my thought. If you don't have to, be you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. Um, so yeah, my experience of all this stuff, which I don't know how you get away from that. You know, at some point, all this stuff becomes subjective. And you can do all the work and get the degrees and be cool like Latia and be smart. Finally, you're smart. <laughs> We've been saying for years, when will she get smart? <laughs> you can get all the stuff. Um, it still doesn't matter, like all the objective knowledge that you know. You're still filtering it through your own personal experience. And so I guess uh, my personal experience has been all of these things. Um, and out of all those things, love seems to be the thing that kind of throbs and pulsates the most and is so captivating to me. Well, I was out of cardboard, uh, so I didn't have any other things to give you, and that is the end of my particular talk.
So now what do you do? Do you want to open it up to questions? Well, I did slightly reference the stories, so I can reference those more, but um, that was to try to highlight that my experience is that something bigger than us is going on. And I suppose if we wanted to uh, extrapolate out those stories, I'm not really this black and white, like wrong, right, binary, but I suppose you could say, you know, Quiznos guy, in this, the way this story was presented, probably represents a more shadow side of who we are. And QT people definitely represent, you know, uh, something of the light and something I want to gravitate towards. So, like, there's something bigger going on. Again, I don't think it's all either bad or good. I think we're all a mix, but it's all at play and uh, trying to be aware of those things that are bigger than me. I kind of always think, at what at what point is it enough where you can say, okay, I'm just going to keep going through. And then, <laughs> but before you might have said, nah. I don't know if that's very clear. Two mics. So the question is, at what point do you, you just say, you know what, I don't need to have faith anymore? Oh, okay. Give him that well, mic again. Yeah. Like, at what point will you just agree with yourself that, like, I don't really know what is out ahead, but I'm just going to, I guess I'm just oh. going to keep going because it doesn't make sense to stop. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Okay, yeah. I think that, um, I, you know, you could probably, you could probably stop a lot shorter than I have. Um, I feel driven probably in some ways that I think are healthy and some ways that may not be that healthy. And by the way, some ways that probably don't make any sense because faith is only faith when you have uncertainty. It's the great myth of American religion or any religion for that matter. Like, I hate it when people talk about, oh, they're such a great person of faith. Like, they have it all figured out and their life works. And it's actually the complete opposite. So I fall victim to that as well. Um, but if the question is, I'm not saying you said it this way, but I'm, I'll paraphrase it. If the question is, Jonathan, when would you just relax and just you just believe in love and do the best that you can do? I would say, yeah, that's a great question, Eric, and um, I need to do better at that. Um, you talked about the, the pairing of uh, pain and beauty. Yeah. Um, and you said that you've thought a lot about this. How do you yeah. kind of reckon with, like, big horrific oppression? And, like, how does that fit into kind of that, that pairing? <laughs> Yeah, I have thought a lot about it. I may not have a good response, but I have, no, I have a response. I may not have a good answer. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. There's like a half a different ways I'd like to approach. Um, one might be to talk about how, to me, they're two sides of the same coin. It, it, there's no way to extract one from the other. You can't have, I don't think, uh, you can have pain without beauty or beauty without pain. So that's quite troubling and problematic. Um, so I could talk about that. I, also, I could also talk about how, despite all that, that, and maybe this is a piece of the evolution, like I think there's a, there's a love-infused thread that runs through the DNA of evolution. And so love itself is constantly under the forces of entropy and kind of wounded and falling in itself. But at the same time, um, 
in a kaleidoscopic, like fractal way, it's opening up to something beautiful and new. Um, and so there's pain and beauty in the midst of all that. And that has been a way that I've tried to, that's helped me kind of work through, oh, like God is a part of all of this, but God may not be exactly, it may not be God's fault. By the way, I'm fine if you need to blame God because all of us have been through stuff that it might be a healthier thing to blame God. But um, so that God is present. So I'm, I'm really big, like I'm not big on the omnis anymore, except for omnipresence. But omnipotence, psh, I think it's like horrible for the most part, the way we framed it. And omniscience, I'm even, I've had to rehabilitate, but I'm really down with omnipresence. And I think that um, for those of us who care about what the Bible has to say, and if you don't, that's totally fine, but uh, for those of us who care about what the Bible has to say, it's a way to see God as actually being closer than a brother, as actually being close to the brokenhearted, as a way of being hovering Genesis 1-2, hovering over the spirit of, over the chaos, tohu vabohu is the Hebrew word, and chaos is, it's like this reckless uh, potential for pain and beauty all at the same time, and that God is, is hovering and or infused right in the middle of all of it. So, um, yeah, it's those kinds of things I'm working through. I don't think I answered the question, but do you, do you want to push, do you want to ask just something a little bit? more about that? Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking about like pain in that, that, that has been like inflicted on people systemically and generationally and like, like that kind of pain is, I, I have a hard time seeing the beauty in that. Um, and so I was just curious about your take. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I don't see the beauty in that either. Uh, and at the same time, what I think is beautiful is, um, well, let me just say it this way, maybe, is the, you showing up and saying, that's not beautiful. That's not right. That's a beautiful thing in the midst of this very unbeautiful thing that's happening. It's people who will stand up in the midst of something, uh, injustice, you know, in the midst of some systemic horrible thing, and say, um, you know, this isn't right which again gets back to how interconnected pain and beauty is. And for me, uh, the divine is that thing inviting you to do that. To say, you know, I don't care what the church says or I don't care what my government says or this isn't right, you know, and I'm gonna stand up in that. You could experience a lot of hurt because of it, um, but you also are opening yourself up to something that's really beautiful at the same time. I don't think there's any way to get away from either one. So I agree, I wanna go on record saying these systemic things, or maybe they're individual things, but certainly systemic things, they're highly problematic, they're not beautiful, they're painful, but just, but to be able to say that means that I have a framework for what should be right, and that's beautiful, and that's the thing I wanna lean into. Now it might cause me a lot of pain, in fact it probably has and probably will be, but that, that's the beauty piece. Yeah, that's a better, that's a better answer. And I also think there's, I, I won't talk about this, but there's whole um, ways that have helped me, and it's what I did a lot of um, my dissertation work on, of understanding why that oppression potentially exists in the first place. 
And for me, it was important to work through it in such a way that I could, with reasonable intelligence, I'm not saying I have it all figured out, but I can, in a reasonably intelligent way, say, oh, that's not there because of some predetermined thing that God needed, but rather it's there because it's what humans do. We build systems of oppression. But that love is, love is always present, which is really beautiful. Your thoughts about Jesus uh, being with the men on the cross or the individuals that you know, are going through these horrific things that Jesus is right there. When Quince passed, Jesus was right there. I mean, that kind of thing to me is beauty. That kind of thing is beautiful? Yeah, it is. Like there's something very haunting and terrible. Really, when you think about it, like could there be worse news? It's called deicide, the death of God. I remember a few years ago at Good Friday service, we changed the lyrics so that the singers were singing the word deicide and and I lost a few people after that one. They're like, I can't, I can't sing this word. That's the last time we ever saw him. But I'm like, that's what's going on here. You know, we, we, we attempted to kill God, or we did kill God. But somehow in the humanity of all of that, it also opens up. Well, it opens up possibilities, which is what faith is about. It doesn't, doesn't guarantee anything. I'm not even, I don't know what I think of the resurrection, other than I think what it says is that it, there's possi- it's possible that love could still yet win and that love is patient. Oh, and win again, because there is no ending thing. It just keeps going and going. Yeah, it's a big, big piece of my story. It's why Jesus is important to me still, although in, in different kinds of ways maybe than, than the story was presented to me. I, if this takes too long, it's fine. But uh, I kind of want to hear more about that, like the idea that well, I used to believe this about Jesus, mm. and now, mm. like, yes. what, what changed, and what do you still find so compelling about Jesus that it keeps you doing what you're doing? <laughs> Part of the reason I keep doing what I'm doing is because I'm a really, I recognize I'm a, a really mimetic creature. I'm very aware of how um, people are interacting with things that I say and I interact with things that they say. And I've noticed the older I've gotten how um, uh, uh, energy in a room or in a conversation can go from zero to 60 really quick when you say particular things. And so when I was younger, I used to think, take that as a sign of, oh, I shouldn't talk about that stuff. As I got older, I took it as a sign like, oh, there's something going on there. The more they say, oh, no, God does need sacrifice, and the more their face gets red and they start to shake, the more you realize something is, something is belying, you know, all of this agitation and anxiety. And so I think some of it speaks to my uh, probably immaturity. I just keep pushing at that thing um, because they keep telling me in louder and louder voices it's not that way. And I'm like, you know, in the psychodynamic world, the louder you yell, it probably means that you're trying to hide something. For example, if you, have you driven on Interstate 70 lately between here and Colorado? Oh, my word. There are so many political signs and so many signs about Jesus, and they're all, you know, they're all, like, just really small ideas of who God would be and Jesus would be. Well, my, one of my very favorite is, I think you're coming back from, um, I'm pointing this way, I have no direct sense of direction, but you're coming back from the west, back to Kansas City, 
and there's a sign about halfway there that's just a giant black sign in white letters that says, Jesus is real. You know, of course, in our texting day and age, you know, anything in caps is shouting anyhow, plus it's black and white, and the font is like larger than human size. So you come up over the corner, and you're basically like someone yelling at you, Jesus is real, and it just cracks me up every time because in psychodynamic world, what it, the, what it means is the person who probably has the most doubts about the reality of Jesus is the person who put that sign up on the highway. And you see it all the way up and down the whole way. I'm like, holy cow, these, are a lot of, these people have a lot of doubts. There's a lot of insecurity on this highway. Otherwise, you wouldn't put the sign up. So that's one way to answer the question. Uh, let, me, let me give you a better way to answer it, um, and that is to reference a little book I wrote called The Reconstructionist, which is just a play on the word, obviously, deconstruction. And this is where I met Sunil, because Latia invited him to be a part of this small group that I was starting where I, I finally realized that all of my uh, basically deconstruction journey, I try not to use that word because it's so used, it's used so much and I think it's probably overused. But anyhow, we, we understand colloquially kind of what it means. But I finally realized that um, my entire journey, I think I could filter it through three, three things. And I thought they were very interesting things, and so it kept me in the game, so to speak. And the first was uh, that mercy is greater than sacrifice. And the second one was people are greater than the text. And the third one is love is greater than fear. And I, I realized over the course of three, four, five, six years, every question I had, and I still haven't found a question yet that doesn't, that I can't funnel through one of those three things, and I come out with a little bit more clear thinking, whether it was, you know, questions about LGBTQ stuff or, I mean, name the stuff, nationalism, patriarchy, um, I, I don't know, on and on, all the stuff we've dealt with, I would just funnel them through those things and I'd be like, oh no, actually, A, I think it's biblical, B, I think it's something that Jesus is in alignment with, and C, philosophically, it kind of it makes sense to me, my experience, and that is that mercy is greater than sacrifice, People are greater than the text. Love is greater than fear. And so I just kept landing with mercy, love, and people. And I find that to be, like, super helpful. I don't remember if I answered the question, but I think it was something like that. And thank you very much for having me. I'd love to see you, on, yes, on the Substack or interact in other ways if you want. But that's where you can find me.